0: Well, I assume all of you know what is happening this week. Kids, where are the kids? This Thursday is Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. So hopefully that's all on your calendar. I I wanted to do some some background research, so I looked up the Encyclopedia Britannica online, and according to them, it was October 3rd, 1863, that um, President Abraham Lincoln, while we were still in the Civil War, proclaimed a national day of Thanksgiving, and that was celebrated on Thursday, November 26th of that year. And that began a tradition after Abraham Lincoln presidents followed suit, and they chose a day of Thanksgiving around the same time of year, though the date moved a little bit. Franklin, President Franklin Roosevelt thought it would be good for our nation's economy if we extended the Christmas season a little bit. And so he moved Thanksgiving back to the third week of November, but that didn't go over too well. There was some pushback and some debate about that, so after a joint resolution of Congress in 1941, President Roosevelt in 1942 officially declared that the fourth Thursday of November would be a day of Thanksgiving. And so on paper, we understand that Thanksgiving is a day for us to be united in gratitude for what God has provided. It is primarily a focus of the heart, not of external things. The external things aren't bad or wrong, but they're not supposed to be the dominant factor. However, if you ask the average American, what is Thanksgiving about or what comes to mind when you think about Thanksgiving, you'd probably get a lot of those external things. For the kids, Thanksgiving means no school, a week off, or a couple days off at least. Some people might say Thanksgiving means football. Thanksgiving means Black Friday. Um, Some people, Thanksgiving means family and friends who come over. But I think the most common connection in my mind, and I think because of advertising and the culture, the most common factor that comes to mind with Thanksgiving is the food. Most people think about Thanksgiving and they think the turkey, the mashed potatoes, the gravy, the stuffing, and everything else. So along those lines, I'm bringing you a passage this morning that talks about food, but it also deals with having our priorities properly aligned. So if you will, take your Bible and go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, it is a very familiar story. I'm sure most of you have heard this already. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels, so that makes it noteworthy. We're going to start the story in chapter 6 of John, verses 1 through 4, which give us the background. They they set the stage for what we're going to hear and what's about to happen. John chapter 6, verse 1 says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So we're dropping into the middle of Jesus' ministry. He's been, going, he's been ministering for some time now. People have, some have seen Many have heard about his miracles, and that means that wherever Jesus goes, a crowd is going looking for Jesus. He's a bit of a celebrity in that regard. He's now back in the northern part of Israel by the Sea of Galilee, and verse 4 tells us the time of the Passover is close. Similar to how we think of Christmas or Thanksgiving, the Passover was a national feast for Israel, And that meant that Jews from all over the Roman Empire were traveling primarily toward Israel, but ultimately toward Jerusalem where they had to be for Passover. So you have crowds that are larger than usual. But along with that, you also have a religious and a political expectancy. Passover, if you know, was a reminder back to what happened under the time and the leadership of Moses, where the angel of the Lord passed over the homes of the Israelites and killed the firstborn son in the homes of the Egyptians, but that was God's deliverance of Israel from their slavery in Egypt, and so connected to that, the Israelites are waiting for that to happen Again, they want a new Moses. They want a new prophet who would be empowered by God and would deliver them this time from the rule of the Romans. So that's kind of the background to what's happening. Christ is on a mountain, and that just lets you know about the the time of year that it is. Let's continue the story in verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Verse seven says, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So Christ looks up, another gospel tells us he's filled with compassion for the multitude. So he has a concern for the people, but he's also wanting now to teach his disciples a lesson. He wants to strengthen their faith. And we can imagine what was going through Philip's mind, not just in seeing the crowd, but now in hearing Jesus tell him, hey, we got to feed these people. On the one hand, he might have been thinking, Jesus, you're crazy. There's no way we're going to be able to feed these people. On the other hand, he might have been panicking because Jesus is his master, his Lord, his rabbi. How in the world are we going to fulfill this? Request. Just think about what Jesus is, is hinting at. You want me to feed the people? In your own home, you might have felt the holiday pressure when you're cooking and preparing and someone goes, oh, my neighbors are coming and two of my cousins are coming. you go, I got more people than I expected at my home. Well, that is nowhere near the exasperation Philip is experiencing. If you look around, I don't know the number, we're probably at around 80, 90 people in the room right now. So if, during the service, an elder came down and tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey, we need to feed everybody after service. Can you just take care of that? What are you gonna do? The simplest is, well, I'm not gonna do it. Someone else gotta do it. Let's just buy lunch and everyone's gonna get a hamburger or whatever. But you gotta pay for that. Down in verse 10, we're told that the number of the men was about 5,000. That's just the men. So you add on women, you add up children. This, this could have been a group well over 10,000 people coming in the green grass to hear Jesus on the mountain. So Philip says, we don't have enough money. He's, he's doing the math really quick in his head he says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not enough even for them to get a little. Uh, uh, the denarii is plural for a denarius. A denarius was one day's wages generally for a worker, a laborer. So 200 denarii, that's 200 days worth of work. Just to put it in, in perspective for today, the year is now 2023. The minimum wage in California is $15.50. It was 8 50 when I was in college, and much less when some of you were in college. So what does that come out to today? $15.50. You pay someone for $8 a day, that's $124. You multiply that times 200 days of work, you get $24,800. So just round it to 25000 So Philip's looking at this multitude of people They've gathered to see and hear Jesus. And in today's terms, he says, Jesus, 25 grand is not enough just for them to even have a little. This is a devastating logistical problem. And God bless Andrew. I assume he's trying to help. Look at verse 8. He says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? They're scrounging. What do we got? Five, not barley loaf, okay, not a loaf of bread. It means a roll. Picture a dinner roll. That's the size. Five barley loaves and two fish likely pickled or dried. This was the boy's lunch. And think about how the disciples who were near Jesus might have responded when Jesus said, verse 10, Jesus says, Have the people sit down. What are you doing, Jesus? Have them sit down. And John adds, Now there was much grass in the place, so Mark says it was green grass, so likely in the springtime. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed it to those who were seated. So you can imagine, usually, I'm sure even back then you pray, you pray, you close your eyes. But I would imagine as Jesus takes a little basket, let's assume, with five loaves and two fish and begins to say, Lord, Father, thank you for what you provided. People are opening their eyes going, what are you doing? You're thanking God for one plate of food, enough to feed one boy. And you got to feed over 10,000 people. But Jesus begins to separate it. He breaks a piece of bread, sets it in a basket, sets it in a basket. And as he's doing this, he's, he's filling the basket. The, the, the math doesn't add up. How does he, verse 12 finishes and says, so also he did with the fish. And then it says, as much as they wanted. What's happening there? Well, I, I just, you just have to think, what does that look like to just tear off a piece of bread and just keep doing it till the baskets fill up? This is the creative power of Christ on display. He literally made a meal for the people. And you have to keep in mind that these are mainly poor people. You know, you show up here, you have coffee, you have bread, and and we enjoy that, enjoy that time. But you don't need it. You're not like, oh, if I don't, you know, most of us, I'm going to faint, you know, if I don't get coffee and bread. But these were people who survived day to day. Primarily people surviving meal to meal. That was the culture of the day. I remember when we covered this in John, I asked my dad, and since then I asked other men in, our, in the Spanish side who grew up in another country. I said, when you were a kid, dad, did you ever eat until you were full? And he said, no. You ate till your plate was empty, and then that was it. There were no seconds. There was no, no, there was no, there was no more. And if a visitor came, someone had to give up their piece of bread for the visitor. I think that's what it it would have been like for most of the people in the crowd that day. For some, it might have been the first time in their life they ate until they were full. They never even heard the word buffet. But that's what they had that day. They ate until they were full. They were allowed to have as much as they wanted. And it was all because of Christ and his miraculous power to create food and then to distribute it to them. And as the wonderful creator that Christ is, I assume it was delicious. Jesus made wine in John chapter 2, and they said it was the best wine they'd ever had. This is good bread, good fish. This would have been an unforgettable meal. This was the meal of a lifetime for them. Verse 12 says, When they had eaten their fill, Jesus told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. John repeats the original amount. He wants to make it clear to us this was a miracle. There are people who want to reject the Bible. They affirm it as a historical document but say this this can't really have happened. So what they say is, well, the people were so moved by a little boy offering his lunch to help that as the food is being passed out, they started to give their lunch and then everybody ate because they all just shared their food. That is not what happened. From the five loaves and the two fish, everybody ate until they were full. And it is interesting to note that the amount of leftover baskets of food was 12, the same as the number of disciples. Some said, well, maybe that's what they ate after they fed the people. If they had already eaten, then this would be their leftovers for the day after, which is what we all do the day after Thanksgiving. You're having turkey sandwiches and whatever else you do with turkey. What's the point of the story? What do we learn from this amazing miracle of our Lord? We have two very simple but important reminders. Number one, we're reminded in this miracle that Jesus Christ is the creator. Jesus is the creator. And what an important lesson to keep in mind, especially this week as we celebrate with our families. I assume you're all going to have a nice meal for Thanksgiving, the table will be set and it's easy to just go and consume it without pausing to ask where did this come from who is it that made the plants and the animals jesus did john 1 tells us all things were made through him he's the creator Nothing without him was not anything made that was made. Everything you see in this world is from Jesus. Even the the chair you're sitting on, this building, well, men built it. Yes, using the resources that Christ created in the world for us. God made man and he gave him dominion over the earth. And in that dominion, we build and we eat. Who made the wheat? So you can have dinner rolls and stuffing. Who made the cows that give you steak and milk and butter? Who made potatoes? Who made turkeys? Who made pigs that give you ham? Whether you like them or not, who made cranberries? Who made apples? Who made pumpkins? All that is from Christ, our creator. Romans 1 tells us that everything we see is a testament to Christ's power, Christ's wisdom. He filled this world with sustenance for mankind. He gave us physically a mouth and a tongue to enjoy it. When God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, one of his first words to them was, I have given you the plants and the fruits. They are food for you. There was one tree they weren't supposed to eat from. And he said, everything else, eat it, enjoy it. All of us have things that we don't like. Plants, spices, fruits, whatever. I I don't like that. That's fine. But there's plenty you do like, right? And that's from God. What's the Christmas song that says, bring us some figgy pudding? You think, that sounds awful. But people at some point in time enjoyed it. And people at some point in time enjoyed things like fruitcake, And there are things that we may enjoy now that future generations will say, no, that's old-fashioned. We don't do that anymore. Every century, food... I was telling my son yesterday, the food we eat now doesn't look the way it looked hundreds of years ago. There's technology changes. There's changes even in produce and the mix things. Every culture has shaped the ingredients that God has provided to make delicious things because Jesus is our wonderful... And powerful creator. A second lesson we see in this miracle is that Jesus is also our provider. Jesus is the provider. It's one thing to say, well, Jesus made all that stuff, but it's out here. It's another thing to say, he brings it to me. He gives it to me to enjoy and to be sustained. And in our culture, by the grace of God, we're not just watching people eat food. We enjoy food ourselves. We're we're sustained by what he's provided. He brings it to us. Everything you eat was made by someone. I understand your mom, your grandma, your aunt, your neighbor, whoever, you yourself. Some human made the food, but behind all of that is the wonderful grace of God who brings it to you so that you would enjoy it and be nourished by it. That's the gracious provision of our God. Psalm 145, verses 15 and 16, it says there, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. And that was so much more prevalent in an agricultural society where things had to be grown and then you got to eat. We live in a culture where everything leads to us. If it's not growing in our part of the world, it's growing in another part of the world and they ship it to us and that's the grocery store. But they understood in an agricultural society, something. Ha- we're so detached from, from that. Farming is, is for kids to learn in school. You know, We don't even see it, but that's still the way it happens. But behind it all is is God. There's human ingenuity and science and technology, but God is the one who gave this to us. Psalm 104 tells us God is the one who produces springs in the valleys so the animals can drink. He gives them water, He provides a, a home for the birds and the trees. And then verses 14 and 15, Psalm 104, say, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. It's all from the earth, which is from God. I, don't, I think most of us aren't rubbing olive oil on our, on our body. That was a type of ointment back then. Today we use lotion or whatever else, perfume. Where does that stuff come from? Where do the chemicals come from? From the earth. The Apostle Paul said, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. So whether it's French fries or a chicken salad or a bag of hot Cheetos or a ribeye steak or a piece of chocolate or a slice of apple pie, whatever it is you're eating, remember this came to you from Christ, your gracious and merciful provider. Now, in most our minds, this is where the story ends, but it's not where John ends the story. What happened next? Look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, so they understood a miracle had taken place. When they saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What's happening there? There's something about how the people respond to the miracle that doesn't line up with Christ's plan or Christ's message this crowd really quickly whipped itself up into a frenzy and they've just eaten so they got strength. And whether Jesus, is, whether Jesus wanted it or not, they were gonna take him and they were gonna march him into Jerusalem and say, he is our king. But Christ spoils those plans. He escapes by himself into the mountains. What's the problem here? What is it that the people have wrong? To better understand that, we we can just keep reading and find out what happened the next day. We won't cover it this morning, but in verses 16 through 21, we read that Jesus' disciples, they left on a boat. They cross the sea to the other side. Jesus stays in the mountain. And later that night, Jesus catches up to them by walking on the water. The next day, the crowds go searching for Jesus, and they go to the side where he taught them, and he wasn't there, and then they end up back at the side where he is now with his disciples. They find him there, and Jesus this time isn't teaching on a mountain. He's in the synagogue. He's in the city of Capernaum. Let's pick up the story in verse 25. John 6, 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, when did you come here? Again, he's a celebrity. How did you get here? You know, celebrities kind of take secret entrances or exits sometimes to hotels. They're watching Jesus. Where is he going? Is he here? And then, they, oh, he's here. How did you get here? Jesus doesn't answer their question. Verse 26, he answers them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill, Of the loaves. So here's the difference between what the people expected and what Jesus provided. The people wanted the physical blessings that accompanied the reign of the Messiah, but they did not want to surrender to Christ on his terms. They wanted the physical or the political even blessings of the promised king, but they would not surrender to Jesus on his terms. And that tragedy is a devastating tragedy for Christians even today, so-called Christians. The message is that Jesus does not come to you on your terms. You need to come to him on his terms. That's the message. You don't just add Jesus to your life. You don't treat Jesus like a genie who can give you good things. You come on his terms. And what an important message this is, especially around the holidays, because we're going to gather with friends, we're going to gather with family, we're going to enjoy a nice meal, and it's easy to assume life is good. Even if for just this day, life feels good, everything is, is good, and seeing all the blessings that I've experienced, I must be right with God. Do not confuse the common grace of God as evidence of his special grace. That's what this crowd was doing. They took the common grace of God and assumed it was evidence of God's special grace. Common grace refers to God's kindness, common kindness to all people, wicked or evil. Even the wicked can enjoy a steak. Special grace is God's special love which involves salvation from eternal hell and ultimately reconciliation with him. This crowd had assumed that simply because Jesus provided them with a good meal, they were worthy of entering the kingdom of God. This wonderful meal is a foretaste of the kingdom of God, and that's where we're going. We're in the kingdom. This would be like a woman believing a man is in love with her because he held the door open for her as she entered the grocery store. Can can, can you imagine that? oh, I I met a man. He loves me. What? He held the door open for me as I walked into the grocery store. What are you talking about? That act in itself doesn't mean anything about a special relationship. It's a common courtesy. Christ's act in feeding the people was no indication that this crowd was headed for heaven, but that's the way they received it. They see Jesus not as a king to bow down before, but as a genie who will make their life better and give them whatever they want. This is the tragedy, in America especially, of cultural Christianity. I grew up in church. I go to church sometimes. I know about the Bible. I have friends at church. I, 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 I have connections there. And, and my life is pretty good because I follow those things. I, my life's not a mess And so I'm good with God, right? They wrongfully interpret the common grace of God as a sign of his eternal favor. We need to be especially careful about that in the holiday season. We want to be careful about that around our children. We want to be careful about communicating that wrong message to neighbors and family members. But most of all, we want to be careful about not internalizing that message. More than anybody else, we as Christians should be thankful this holiday season. We give thanks to God for what's before us and around us. But we cannot have a spirit of blind thankfulness that keeps us from examining our own lives and our own hearts. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life which the son of man will give to you for on him god the father has set his seal in other words jesus says don't be consumed with the stuff this world can offer be consumed by something else and and actually it's a someone not a something be consumed with someone else that is the son of man that is Jesus Christ. That was the title of his authority. The Jews understood that from the book of Daniel. This is the one who would inherit all of creation. He is the true king. And you need to surrender to him. Paul calls us in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, examine yourself. How do you do that? Well, you measure up what you see in scripture. You measure up what Christ teaches us. And you compare that to your own life. If in your heart there is no battle against sin, if in your heart there's no desire to serve and to honor Christ, you're not a Christian. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized. It doesn't matter if you said something at a certain age in your life. If you don't love and serve Christ, you're not a Christian. Not because that wins salvation, but because that's what the Spirit produces in you. You don't belong to Christ if you don't serve him. You are just like the crowd that ate the fish and the bread. There is a desire to receive temporal blessings from Jesus or from the church, but that is not true Christianity. And that's the message Christ communicates to the people, and they don't get it. Israel, Paul says in Romans, the Corinthians, they're blinded. Look at verse 28. They said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What, What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. these people don't want to trust in Christ. They want a legalistic list. They want a list of do's and don'ts. Just tell us what to do so we can be in the kingdom then. They don't want to surrender their lives and their hearts to Christ. And rather than trust in Jesus, they just want more miracles. Give us a sign. He just fed 10,000 people the day before. Give us a sign. They want more miracles. They want Jesus to do things on their terms. Christ, if you do this, then I'll believe in you. In fact, if you don't do it, it's your fault that I don't believe in you. That's what's implied in their question. And Christ mercifully instructs them, but he knows they're not listening. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you. It's, it's helping them slow down. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Whatever God did through Moses in providing physically for the people, Jesus said it's just a sign of something greater that God the Father is gonna do through me, the Son of Man. But they don't get it. When Jesus fed the people, we were reminded that He is creator and provider. And now, as He teaches them the following day, we get two more reminders, and this will be the the end of our message today. Christ is Savior, and Christ is Ruler. Jesus is creator and provider, but He is also Savior and Ruler. He is King, He is Lord the power that Jesus demonstrated in feeding the people and distributing the food to them, the power that he demonstrated in walking on water is the same power he possesses to save people from their sins and to ultimately restore this broken world. But that salvation comes with a condition for you and for me. Salvation is offered to everyone, but it requires submission to Jesus the King. All of us, to one degree, receive the blessings of God. This is common grace, food, family. But none of us can have the full blessings of Christ if we do not accept his full authority in our life. He is Lord. He is master. He is king. We live in a consumeristic culture today just talking to Richard at the bread time. He compared it to a movie theater, Christianity. Show up, give me something good, then I go home. People want more from God. People want more from their church. And sadly, there are many churches today who will give it to them in the fact that they will meet people's felt needs, but never give them what they need most of all, which is Jesus Christ himself. And they definitely aren't going to call on people to examine themselves. They only want to affirm the people because we got to give people positive experiences only because that's why they're here. Jesus, on the other hand, calls out the crowd for their unbelief. You rejected me. You are not on God's side. At the same time, and we won't talk about this today, but I encourage you to finish reading the chapter on your own. He goes on to promise that all those who truly belong to him will never be lost. Those who partake of the bread of life, he says, will never thirst, will never hunger. They will be fully satisfied, finally satisfied in Christ. Christ will finish the work that God gave him. The message of Christ is that he is Lord and Savior. He is Savior and Lord He rules over all. His death and his resurrection are evidence of that. And you and I need to surrender to him, not just to our idea of him. That's the hard part in our culture. People will tell you, oh, I'm a Christian too. And now you have to ask them, well, what do you mean by that? Do you serve Christ? Is he the Lord of your life? Or is that just the name you tack on to your... External religious rituals, hoping that life will just go better for you. God's message to you and to me every day is call out to Jesus. Beg him for forgiveness. Trust in him. Repent of your sin. That's what it means to partake of the bread of life. You walk by a bakery. It's one thing to smell the bread and see the bread in the window. You could even grab a piece of bread with the tongs. You might consider it. It's another thing to take it, to receive it into your life. That's what Christ wants from you. He wants you to receive him for who he is. You surrender your life to him. You do that, and Christ grants you eternal life. He is king, he is Lord, and you bow before him, and he saves you. And it gives you blessings far beyond the goodness of any meal. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer after that. We're going to have a moment for us to pray where we are. Pray with your family. Pray with someone next to you if you'd like. But take some time. Thank God. Thank God for wonderful things, the good things that we have. Paul said God filled this world with good things so that we would seek him. And in thanking him for good, for those good things, recognize that we don't deserve them. But Christ has mercifully come to us. He's our Savior. He's the proper ruler of our life. And if you have any questions about that, I would love to talk to you after the service. Come up front, find me, talk to any member here. We want to tell you what it is. What does it mean to know Christ? What does it mean to repent of sin? But we can thank God for the greatest gift, and that is salvation. Let's pray. Father we get to experience so many good things from you every day and in our culture it's easy to take them for granted because of how regular they are we forget to give thanks for a morning cup of coffee we forget to give thanks for a car that works for clothing, and shoes a warm blanket give us hearts that pause and don't forget Christ who has graciously provided all the things that we enjoy. And in thinking about your goodness and your kindness, we pray that that would lead us to repentance, to recognize that Christ has given us even greater things than a good meal. But he's given us eternal salvation. Help us teach this humility and this gratitude to our children. And may our family and our friends know that that this is what characterizes us, and may we proclaim this message to them as well as we interact with them this holiday season. Bless us, Lord. Help us. Give us joy and unity and urgency again in Jesus' name. Amen.